Welcome to the podcast. Our mission is for every man, woman, and child to be empowered with the knowledge of how to be happy. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Silla Elworthy. Dr. Elworthy is a three-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee for her work with the Oxford Research Group, a non-governmental organization she founded in 1982 to develop effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. In 2002, Silla founded Peace Direct, a charity to fund, promote and learn from local peace builders in conflict areas. She was awarded the Nawano Peace Prize in 2003 and advised Peter Gabriel, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Sir Richard Branson in setting up the elders. She now leads the Business Plan for Peace to help prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace throughout the world because peace is possible. And she lays out how in her latest books, The Business Plan for Peace, Building a World Without War and The Mighty Heart, How to Transform Conflict. And last but not least, her TED Talk on nonviolence has been viewed by over a million and a half people. Scylla, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Desmond Tutu once said to you, if you want peace, don't talk to your friends, talk to your enemies. And that advice never really left you, did it? No. It, I mean, he's such a, an incredibly impressive personality in that as soon as he walks into a room, he knows exactly what every person in that room needs and acts on it immediately. And he's just totally brilliant. And, uh, yeah, as, as he says and as he carries out in his life, talk to your enemies. It's, it's, and it's not only your enemies out there. It's the enemy inside. It's your inner critic that you have to talk to. That, that, that was interesting because when I was kind of reading about, you know, a lot of the stuff you, do, you did, bringing together like world leaders and nuclear weapons, but then you were, you've been very, um, very vocal and upfront about it, like the importance of the inner work. And sometimes you have, you put these two things together. When we talk about inner work, sometimes it gets labeled with whatever, like woo-ha, like yoga, hippie, but it's, it's so not like, unless we're doing that inner work, then everything else is kind of a waste of time, isn't it? Well, all the most effective local peace builders that I know in hot conflict countries all over the world, those who've done the inner work are the most effective. And there's a reason for this, because if you've faced your own fear, and that's difficult to do, as we know. But if you've actually faced your own fear and talked to it, not run away from it, then when the moment comes that you have to be present in a knife fight or an argument in the family or a boardroom tussle, if you've faced your own fear, you can then be fully there and able to act relatively free of your own fear. So is it, is, it, is, it a mus- is it like a, it's a muscle that we've got to be constantly looking at the dark, looking at the things which scare us? Absolutely. So if your inner critic or voice in your head wakes you up at three o'clock in the morning, cursing you for something you've done or not done, that's the time when you have to wake up, sit up, make a cup of tea is what I do, and um, actually talk to it. Even set out two cushions and I sit here and I say, why did you wake me up at three o'clock in the morning? (laughs) And and then I go and sit on its cushion and I will answer in its voice. It's amazing. It's quite astonishing. And it it will go on berating me. And then I go back to my cushion and I say, that is not very helpful. Tell me what you really want me to know. Because I know that my critic 
knows something that I need to know. That's why the inner critic is useful. And so I go on with this until it will tell me the truth. And every time it's told me something fundamental, absolutely basic to the next stage in growing up. That's so interesting. So I've, I've heard, uh, I've heard like versions of that in terms of just like asking yourself the question, but I love the physical act of having the two cushions and getting up and actually physically moving to the other cushion. There's something about that. That's so interesting. Mm. And, and, and have your journal with you because what it will tell you will actually be kind of a fundamental message for your life. But you have to be brave enough to face it and to talk to it, to, to ask it to talk to you properly. Uh, I heard you talk about saying 50% of peace agreements break down within five years. I, I had no idea it was going to be, it'd be that high. Why? I mean, I'm sure there'd be multiple things, but why do you think it's such a high number, 50%? Um, mainly um, because there aren't any women sitting around the table. Um, that was the next thing I was going to talk about. Three per- well, there's only 3%. That's ridiculous. Yeah. 3% of people sitting okay. around peace negotiation tables are women. That's yeah. mental. Um, and when that percentage goes up to 10%, the peace agreement lasts 15 years longer at least. And there's a reason for that. Because when you've got two warlords haggling over territory, votes, resources, money, and position in the next government, nobody is thinking about the human issues of war. And when you have women at the table, they will bring the, the issues that they have to take care of, which is orphans, the bereaved widows, all the people who've got PTSD as a result of the war. And unless those issues are dealt with in the peace agreement, the cycle of violence will just go round again. It's very clear. And so the more women and gradually more women are slowly being allowed to sit at peace tables and now to begin to negotiate. But <clears throat> it's a very long, slow business because the, the men don't like it. Something you just said there was um, in terms of one of the things, if you've just got these two warlords or, you know, and they're looking just about the next, either around the corner or the next vote versus the, the idea of like short term thinking versus long term thinking. I feel that's such a problem with so many things when everything's moving so much more towards the immediate, like instant gratification or the now, now, like, you know, what's around the corner versus actually having that zooming out and just as, as just a practice being like a long term thinker, like just seeing those things um yeah i think that's such an issue yeah and 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 you're right it's not it's not even just long-term thinking it's compassionate thinking it's it's when you're when you're when you've got empathy for those who are suffering as a result of war not just concentrating on what you can get out of the next stage but when you when you've got compassion and empathy born of the fact that if you're a woman you're probably the one who's picking up the debris of what's happened and so that makes all the difference that's what feminine intelligence is all about and it's available equally to men as it is to women and it's not a gender thing and feminine intelligence starts with being able to listen properly uh, compassion uh, using your intuition the times I've overridden my intuition or when I've made my biggest mistakes. 
It sounds like you know that too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm nodding in agreement, 100%. <laughs> mm. So during um, the Oxford Research Group, um, mm. you spent 21 years bringing together all the key people to do with nuclear weapons. And so, for example, the people designing the warheads in Los Alamos, you would bring them together with their counterparts in Russia, in China, and you would ask them like questions like, well, why do you do what you do? Why do you want to make more and more weapons? And then you, what sounds quite interesting, you were drawing, you would draw like a cognitive map of the way that they would think. What did that kind of cognitive map tell you? Well, I did that when I was interviewing people personally. I didn't do it when I was bringing them together okay, in a meeting. Gotcha. That would have been too intrusive. Um, so the cognitive map when I met them was to really understand how they thought and to listen to them. That was key because most people who are perceived as anti-war, anti-nuke, would be perceived by one of those people as um, unspeakable intrusion into their world. But because I was genuinely interested, this was my doctorate, was genuinely interested in how they thought, then I could listen to them to the extent that I could do this um, this kind of mental cognitive map of how they thought. And then I wrote back to them afterwards and said, would you like to see it? And they all said yes. So that led to another conversation, a live conversation. And that meant that they began to trust me and then were eventually willing to come to some of these meetings to meet their opposite numbers. And the key to those happening were that they were all um, completely confidential, no press, no communiques. Um, people could come uh, really incognito if they wanted. Um, but the idea was that they would sit in a circle, no desks, no tables, no negotiating stuff, no recording. And they could take off their jackets and begin to actually get to know each other as people. Even in China, we took a number of delegations of very, very senior British military and German military to China and had the most amazing conversations there, run like that, on that basis. During those cognitive maps, I think 95% of those maps came back with something about like threat, didn't they? What was it? It was about... There's a feeling of deep threat. They, that's true. Uh, when you draw a cognitive map, there's what they call a sink, which is a bit like a pot plant. It's where everything grows out of. And the sink, in their case, for 95% of them, was feeling threatened, either as a child or in their education or in their profession. They were very conscious of the threat. And that's why they were so convinced that we needed nuclear weapons. What they didn't realize was that nuclear weapons were facing humanity with a much greater threat of total annihilation by mistake. I mean, in November 1983, we were 18 minutes away from an accidental nuclear war. You mentioned the word childhood. So if, if, that, if that's, that feeling of a deep threat is something from childhood, then even in when our in our environment, when supposedly like, the threat disappears, if it's a childhood thing, then it's still there. So I think even when the Berlin Wall came down, you went back and interviewed 
the same people. And, uh, you know, on, on, on the surface, you know, the walls come down, it seems like a much safer, rosier time. And yet, the, the same motivation was there. It was still feeling a threat, even though their environment was, uh, by, by all accounts, much safer. Yeah, they, it, it, they had become used to and ingrained with the feeling that superior force, superior might, was essential for security. So you had, that meant, obviously, if you look at it, that there was an escalation. So if America developed these weapons and the then Soviet Union developed those weapons, the Americans needed to upscale their weapons, Russia and so forth, and up it went. And things just got more dangerous by the day with the megatonnage of weapons, on which were then on the basis of um, what was called use them or lose them. Um, so if, for example, as happened, the Russian radar inspectors saw what they thought was an incoming flight of American missiles, they, would, they gave the instruction in November 83 to the Kremlin that in 15 minutes you're going to have to press the button because we have to destroy not those incoming missiles, we have to destroy the United States before they destroy our, us and our missiles. I mean, it, 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 it was a lunatic policy and remnants of it still exist. Because I, I saw you doing a, you did a video in like 2000 and I think it was like 2013 and you were saying how, and so I don't know if anything's changed in the last six years or seven years, but you were saying how uh, a lot of these policies, like a lot of countries still are like, they're, all the missiles are on red alert, like e even today. So I mean, in the last five years, seven years, I think since you <laughs> the video, has things changed or is that statement still true? It's less so now, but in, there are remnants of it. But Honestly, I can't answer that with authority because in 2002, I handed over the Oxford Research Group and its nuclear work to other people, very, very skilled people, because I got more interested in what was happening at the grassroots, namely what local people in conflict areas were doing to, to stop other people getting killed. Mm. And that's and Peace Direct. Was, that's Peace Direct. You've really done your homework. Thank you. Um, Peace Direct found out initially that there were 350 such initiatives worldwide back in 2002. Now there are 1,800. Wow. It's just mushrooming. Where quite small groups of very, very courageous people are risking their lives so that other people don't get killed. I want to ask you about that because we rarely hear in the media about all the amazing and heroic things happening at the, grass, the grassroots level. And I think mm. I, you, um, you obviously must come across countless example and story after story. Are there any particular one or two stories which jump out to you that we never would have heard? Yeah, exactly. Well, for example, um, in the Congo, you know, there's been the long, one of the longest running civil wars. It's taken at least six million lives in the Congo. And there was one man who'd been caught and made to be a child soldier. And he eventually escaped and he found his way after three days walking to a center for the resolution of conflict where he was then trained. And now what he does with the support of Peace Direct, if we send him a very small amount of money, like $100, he gets on his motorbike, rides into the bush and buys a herd of goats. And he then drives the goats to where he knows the militia are hiding and he bargains with them um, 
he bargains one goat for one child soldier and then takes the kids back to their families. And then the problems start being unraveled because those kids have been so terrorized and forced to do such horrible things like shoot their own relatives that they have to go through a long, long period of rehabilitation without much help and and are often not accepted back by their communities. So it's a huge, huge and difficult business rehabilitating child soldiers. In your TED talk, um, you mentioned a guy called Gene Sharp, who um, I, I, he died a couple of years ago at the age of 90, but he wrote this book that you mentioned, uh, From Dictatorship to Democracy. And tell me about his influence. Well, he, he's just, um, he's a wonderful man because he's, he, in that book, I think he outlined maybe not, up to 97 yeah. methods. Yeah, 81 methodologies for 81 methodologies of nonviolent resistance to overwhelming force. And ways that people can do that with, in general, without getting killed themselves. So, I mean, as we know what's happening to the Uyghurs in, in northern China at the moment, as we know what's happening to in Myanmar with the Rohingya, people are being, whole areas of, of um, habitation are being wiped out with people not having any methodology to resist superior force, because it's very, very difficult. If 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 the um, army in Myanmar are sent in to drive people away from their homeland, and it's the army that's doing it, it's really, really hard for them to resist. And so, so that book was. I mean, has that been cited as something which is hugely responsible for? empowering people with these with yeah. these tools that you that you never you don't know what you don't know and so it's given them uh, almost an arsenal of like a, a non-violent arsenal of exactly. things they can do and it was much used and to end the balkans war um where uh young people d- found that the serbian government was rigging the election and so they did what they'd been trained to do which it only took five dollars to train each person they were election monitors and they went and monitored every polling station and got their own figures um or at least they were able to watch that the the polling slips were put in correctly and as a result the election went against uh, milosevic so they won the election by being election monitors completely non-violent and very effective uh, in in your book, the business plan for peace, uh, it's the first ever costed business plan for peace. So, um, business plan for peace. So, you brought together all the practices that you know work in preventing war, and mm-hmm. you've costed everything up. And if it was applied over ten years, it would cost only two billion dollars. Which, to put into context, we spend nine billion every year on ice cream. Do you know how much we spend on? Armaments, militarization. I, 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 I wrote it down somewhere earlier. It was a mental amount. Tell me. No, it's $1.9 trillion. God. A year on, weapon, on weaponizing the world. 1.9, how many thousand is that? 1,900 billion. Oh, my God. It's really shocking that we've got to this state that we approve these massive defense budgets 
which really benefit only the big defense manufacturing companies. And in some cases, the military don't even want the weapons, but um, there's a huge um, investment now, very, very large sums of money in encouraging militarization, encouraging the production of weapons systems, whether nuclear or right down to, um, to machine guns. What's changed? Why sunny? Has there been sunny uh, an amping up of that? No, no, it's just progressive. It oh, just, it's just, just a constant, hasn't? Just keeps going up every year. Doesn't matter what's happening in the world, keeps going up. How is um with, with the book with um with that uh, when you lay it out like that, and it seems like you know such an, a no brainer decision, like two billion. Why? Like why? Why? If it, it's such a no brainer decision. Why is it not being acted upon? It's because a lot of people make a lot of money out of it. I know, of course, that's also yeah. a very good reason. <laughs> yeah, but you're asking all the right questions. The thing is that most people don't know that this is the world we live in. And they also don't know that if you took, I think it's even, um, let me see, uh, $21 billion, you could wipe out starvation in the world. And yet we're spending... $1,917 billion on weapons. So, you know, and, you know, we, we sort of tear our hair about um, starvation or lack of education for children. The sums are so small compared to what we spend on guns. You are you're optimistic, though. You, 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 you said at the end of t- your TED Talk, uh, I think you used the word hope and then you actually corrected yourself. You're like, I'm hopeful. And then you're like, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was, it was more than hope. I can't remember the exact wording, but it was like, no, I, I, you, you, you believe it's because when, you know, world peace, it seems like a, uh, sure, like yeah. a, a, a trite comment, but you believe that it's not just a, not like a, a, a dream. It's very much, it's practical and it's possible. It's practical and it's possible and it needs muscle and it particularly needs muscle in your age group. In other words, it needs that this information is made clear to um, people who've got education, who've got a certain amount of um, mobility, you know, they can get around um, and, and can learn about this and develop a bit of a passion that will give them a sense of usefulness, a sense of belonging. It's, it's, um, a matter of people are really good at doing what breaks their heart. And if you focus on, you know, if, if a child refugee breaks your heart or people being gunned down in Syria at the moment, um, there's 100,000 people being forcibly disappeared in Syria right now. If these things break your heart and you want to do something about it, you can now. And that's why I wrote this book. Uh, I just... Day after Christmas, I suddenly had this premonition that we were going to be faced with a massive challenge. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know about the pandemic. So I wrote this book called The Mighty Heart, which has all these methodologies about how people can transform conflict, whether it's in their family or their workplace or their community or even at government level. All the skills you need, all written down in a little tiny book. I'll show you. Um, I'm just rewriting it for a bigger edition right now. That's what it looks like. And it's it's actually, the e-version is free on our website. So if you go to 
www.businessplanforpeace, you'll find you can get it for free. And I'm so keen for it to be used as a kind of handbook so that people of all ages, but particularly in their um, 20s, 30s, 40s, get practiced, get um, equipped with those skills. Because that can help you stop a knife fight in the street or it can help you stop your parents fighting or whatever it is. Mm. We like to think that force works. Force doesn't work. Uh, only very, very rarely in a couple of like specific cases does, you know, does it work? Like using force against force does not work. It's not, it's just not a good strategy. If that is, if it's just, if, if, you, if you look at it simply just from a strategy point of view, it's a bad strategy. Well, if you look at Iraq, if you look at Afghanistan, if you look at Syria, massive force was used in each mm. of those cases. Which of those countries is at peace, may I ask? Yeah. None of them. So it, it, you're quite right. It does not work. And yet the strategies of um, intervention without force, the strategies of mediation instead of negotiation is like, mm, you know, two mm. people or two countries arguing. But when you get mediation, which is a third party in there, you get much better results. Yeah. And it's something so simple as, say, I talk to you about whatever whatever's concerning me, and then you listen, and then you just say back what you hear. And then I can correct if you've missed anything. But that seems so so basic, but it's it's so powerful, isn't it? Just two people actually hearing each other. You talk and I'm listening. I'm not checking, you know, my phone. I'm not somewhere else. I'm listening to you. And then I just say back what you said. So you feel heard. You feel, you know, seen and recognized. And then it's so, what I, what I find funny is that we are always looking for the secret source or the next, you know, but most of these things come back to things which are so basic, but they're so human. Yeah. So, you know, next time there's a family argument, say, one that's been going on for a long time, all you need to say is, um, would you be willing, those are the four magic words, would you be willing to your antagonist uh, to spend half an hour with me? And for the first five minutes, I will just listen to your side of it. As long as you do it in the first person, you say, I feel this, I feel that. And I will listen to you so carefully that after five minutes, I can feed back to you what you said, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then we'll change over, and you, you will listen to me. And uh, as an observer of many of these, I've taught it to company executives and all kinds of things. Um, the experience always is that you move from the brain, which says, I'm right and you're wrong, to the heart that says, oh, my God, is that how he feels? And then you've got a kind of a bridge that you can meet over because feelings are where you can meet. I think mean, that's the perfect answer to I was going to I often ask our guests at the end, like, what is one thing our listeners can do today that will have a positive impact on their lives? And I think that's probably a pretty, pretty spot on answer to that. Good. Uh, before I ask, uh, give, you know, just another chance to find out for our audience how they can find out more about you, your work, your books. Is there, and don't worry if there's not, but is, is there anything that you want to leave us with? Is there anything that, um, I don't know, call to action or something which you, you want to kind of leave us with? Yeah, I would love... Um... Anybody who can't have a look at our website, go through it. Uh, and the, anything that takes your interest, get in touch. There's contact um, email address because we've got we're just developing a youth council now. And there are 
a number of volunteer opportunities and we badly need um, people who are good at social media, people who are feeling like becoming activists, learning the skills of uh, conflict prevention. Uh, and, and the more people we can enable with these skills, the better. And very soon we'll have a 10-part online course on the Mighty Heart that you can join. Fantastic. And I'm going to link everything up in uh, underneath it. When you were just a kid, I, I can't remember the exact age, six years old, or like um, you were watching on TV, Soviets, um, tanks were rolling in and you quickly run upstairs and you start, un- you've got to get a suit- um, suitcase out and you start packing up your stuff and your mum came in and she said, what on earth are you doing? What, what, what happened next? Well, um, I said, I'm going to Budapest because it was the Soviet invasion of Hungary. In 50- Actually, I was 13. I wasn't 13. six. And, um, and so I said, I'm going to Budapest. And she said, what for? And I said, there's something so horrible going on there. I have to go. And she said, don't be so silly as mothers did in those days. And I burst into tears. And bless her, she got it because she said, okay, I see, it's really important. Um, but you're much too young to be any use. And um, if you just unpack your suitcase, I will see to it that you get trained. And she did. She sent me off at 16 to work in a holiday camp for concentration camp survivors. And then I went on from there to work in refugee camps and, and for orphans in Algiers after the Algerian War and so on. And that was what I wanted to do. I was lucky in a way because that was that was the only thing I wanted to do. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for coming on to the show today and uh, talking to us and answering all my questions. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for the interview. Happiness.info